0: You may be seated. Well, today is, uh, it's called Palm Sunday, and it marks the first day in the final week of Jesus' life. And so the church, like all over the world, takes today and the days to come to really focus uh, and pay close attention to the final days and moments and hours and even breaths of Jesus' life here on earth, knowing that uh, this journey takes us to Easter, it takes us to Resurrection Sunday. Uh, Easter Sunday, which happens again to be on a Sunday this year, so make sure you're here next week. Um, man, it never works. But, but the text that the text that Kayla just read uh, for us is one of the traditional texts for Palm Sunday, sometimes called as well the Triumphal Entry of Jesus, which is his entrance into the city of Jerusalem. And it's a weird story. I don't know if you were listening, but uh, it's so. I love the ending. How Jesus goes into the temple and he looks around and like no one is there because maybe he was on time, I don't know. But um, just getting that dig in there, maybe it started at 11. But um, but he looks around, there's nobody there, and he just leaves, like end of story. Like it's this incredible story of this triumphant injury, injury, triumphal entry, and he goes into the temple, which is, you know, nobody's there, nothing is happening. It's just the most anticlimactic uh, story, or it's not, and we'll sort of get to that uh, later at the end. But the reason that it's called Palm Sunday has to do with the palm branches that make an appearance in the story. Uh, As for why it's called the triumphal entry, well, that has to do with what Jesus was actually doing and saying through what he was doing through the event. Because entrances uh, say all sorts of things about a person, right? The way that someone enters a room or a party or a new job or even a conversation, that just says all sorts of things about that person and if the entrance is orchestrated and planned then it also says something about how that person views themselves are you with me on that yeah. so thank you Dave is always with me all right uh, baseball starts in a week anybody excited so I, I, I orioles okay well we're gonna start with a brave story i got a craig kimball's picture here uh anybody a kimbrough fan I love I love the entrance to Kimbrel. If you if you go to the games, I don't know if you stay that late, but if you go to the games, of course you do. You're the 11 o'clock service, but um, <laughs> it's just getting started. But I, I love I love the entrance of Craig Kimbrel. I, mean, I don't know if you know this, but like the music starts, like Guns N' Roses, "Welcome to the Jungle" starts to play. I love that song. But anybody know that song? Yeah. I remember when that song came out. Like I was in high school when I was standing in front of MTV when back when they played music and. This song, like, they were they were debuting this new band, Guns N' Roses, I mean, just the the title itself, you're like, wow, that sounds beautiful and painful, all in the same, and they, you know, Welcome to the Jungle was, like, the premiere video, and I just remember standing there watching it, thinking, like, and feeling the earth, like, shift, like, something was happening in front of me, but anyway, so they started to play that song, and you hear Slash, you know, do, doo 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 you know, I lost you at Slash, okay, but... And then the doors open. There's fire. There's always fire for Kimber. I don't know why there's fire, but there's fire on the screen, and his name's on the screen, which is also on fire. Again, the fire theme. And he runs from the bullpen to the mound, and the place, the place goes crazy. I was gonna try to get a video of it, but the only videos on YouTube that I was gonna be able to pirate and download were all like phone videos of drunk people because it's late in the game, and they're you know, here he comes, Whee! you know. So I was like, that 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 would be awkward. So we just went with a photo and. But you know the thing, like he comes running out, and I always wonder, like if the team is like, man, I'm so tired of, I'm so tired of Guns N' Roses, I'm tired of, I'm tired of this entrance, I'm tired of all this. But every game, that's what he does, and I, I it, it's amazing, and I get excited too. But like, what is the point? Like, what is the point that I mean, he's only he's gonna run out there and he's gonna throw the ball what, four, five, six times, and then he's gonna go home. And it's like it's not it's not even like he got the team to that point. We're so excited about the guy who paid who who played no role and where the team is right and he comes running out and he finishes it off because that's his job he's the closer like it's his job to go out there and close the game down and the closer likes to make it known that that's what he's going to do like on his watch this game will end and it'll be victorious like his entrance is basically an announcement of of power of domination of imminent victory, right that's what it is and the crowd loves it like our family we stand I mean we love it too. I'm not like crying, but it's close like it, it's close it's a very spiritual moment, right We're, We get caught up into it too and orchestrated uh, entrances they work. if it's done well, they work. everybody loves it. So I want to talk about this entrance into Jerusalem that Jesus uh, makes at the final week of his life, and the text that you heard Caleb read. We're just going to move through that, maybe piece by piece a little bit here at a time, but we'll start with verse 1. Mark says, now they had drawn near to Jerusalem. So they're standing in front of the city of Jerusalem. Now this will be the last time that Jesus goes into Jerusalem. He's been there a million times, of course. I mean, he grew up around there. His disciples have been there many, many times before, but this will be the last time Jesus is in Jerusalem, because this time around he won't leave, because he will die there. This next week of his life will be, in fact, for us, his most famous week. This is the following days in the life of Jesus are the days that we know most about in, uh, in the church. This is the week of Jesus that we know most. This is, the gospel writer spends so much time right here in the, fa- in the last final days of his life, a week that has come to be known as his Passion Week, the Passion of Christ Week, the final days of his life here on earth. And so. The story begins with Jesus and his disciples just standing there looking uh, into the city, at the edge of the city. But both the disciples and Jesus are standing there looking into Jerusalem with very different ideas about what might happen. Okay, For the disciples, it, there was this hope that Jesus might finally do something political. Right, This is what they're hoping. Because they had had their doubts that Jesus was Messiah... Because Jesus hadn't really done anything all that overtly or radical or political, overtly radical or political, other than, up to this point, other than talk about loving God and loving your neighbor. You know, I mean, that's, that's what you do when I talk about those things. But uh, <laughs> I, I kid, I kid. Just get it on time. All right. But this is the thing. I mean, like, these, these, are, these are his disciples. They're teenagers. They're not old men like we think. They're They're young they got some fire in them, right? They're standing at the edge of the city, and they hear, like, they hear welcome to the jungle. Like, they want to see this thing go down. They think that, and they hope that Jesus will finally do something political. Because Messiah has everything to do with politics in those days, which I'll get to uh, in a few minutes. They were definitely hoping that the action would pick up at this point. But for Jesus, he saw the city very differently. He stood there with this full knowledge that this would be his last time into the city, that this would be his end. The next week of his life um, would be spent doing some teaching, healing, making some trouble here and there, celebrating the Passover feast one last time with his disciples, getting arrested, and then dying on a cross which is a Roman execution uh, method. Now in Luke's version of the story, it says that Jesus stood here at the edge of the city and he cried. He cried as he looked into the city, again, knowing this is going to be his last time there, but also knowing the story beneath the story. I mean, Jesus knows, he knows what's going on. Now Mark goes on to say this, this is what Jesus says to his disciples, go into the village in front of you and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat, untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it and we'll send it back immediately. So there's two ways of seeing this part of the story i mean if you're not catching it jesus basically says go into the village and second door on the right there's a donkey no one's ever sat on it before go get it if the owner goes yo what are you doing with my donkey say the lord needs it and everything will be all right it's almost like just the lord needs it and they'll know and there's two ways of seeing this part of the story one is that this was another one of those times where Jesus is sort of doing the Jesus thing, knowing things people didn't know and being all miraculous and stuff, with the foreknowledge of events and situations and so on. There's that piece. Or that Jesus had already booked the donkey ahead of time. Right? He had an app, sort of an Uber, like he just had it. It was all set. Right? You choose. Because the gospel writers don't tell us how he knew that. But I would like to say either way, it's all prearranged. Whether by the hand of God or by the virtue of Jesus, just simply... Again, planning ahead, not to not to make light of it, but just planning ahead and saying, this is what I've already arranged for the day. Because again, this entrance into Jerusalem is not random, it's very, very orchestrated. So I would like to think that he this is this has already been set up. Most importantly is what Jesus is doing. He's orchestrating an entrance into the city. And remember, orchestrated entrances are announcements about the person, and they are intentional and they're well thought out, and they come. With a message, and the first message that Jesus sends is not anything he says, but it's what he rides into the city on top of. He rides, on, rides into the city on top of a donkey. Now, the donkey, isn't he cute? All I mean, I had Shrek. I mean, all these options. I had like the Shrek donkey. I don't remember his name, but uh, but this one's good. Who is it? Eeyore. I couldn't remember. I was like, I knew there's some loser on Winnie the Pooh that. Uh, <laughs> everybody relax everybody relax it's a cartoon people it's a cartoon Um, all right but this animal is often cast in again cartoons as maybe the shyest or most humble or whatever of animals but in the jewish tradition and this is so important i mean this is the first thing jesus says without saying anything in the jewish tradition part of the many symbols that pointed to the messiah was this the donkey this goes all the way back to the prophet Zechariah, chapter 9, verse 9. Check this out. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. It's another word for Jerusalem. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, on a fowl, the fowl of a donkey. Now, it's really important to know or to be reminded or, or learn for the first time that in the days of Jesus, the hope of a coming Messiah among the Jewish community, was at its highest in history. We know this. And if you are going to ride into Jerusalem at that time on a donkey at the beginning of the Passover season, then you'd best be prepared that people are going to tilt their heads in either speculation or celebration, either thinking that you are some sort of crazy imposter or that you are the real thing. Either way, you need to be prepared for that kind of reaction or those kinds of reactions. And this is the first thing Jesus does. He doesn't say a word, but he he just sort of subtly rides into Jerusalem on this donkey. And anybody who's in the know scripturally tilts their heads and says, either he's making a mockery of our faith or something is happening. Something is going on. That Jesus is up to something. So they bring the donkey to Jesus, and this is what Mark says happens next. They brought the colt to Jesus. They threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. Luke's version says they helped Jesus onto the donkey, which I just find funny. Like, I can do it. I can do it. You know, these teenagers, you know, we'll help you, old, old man Jesus. Um, and many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before him and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna. We've already sung this twice today. Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Now, this all took place at the beginning of what's called the Passover Feast, one of the four major holidays uh, that were celebrated in the city of Jerusalem. I mean, you could celebrate it anywhere, but if you could get to Jerusalem, this was the thing. I mean, pilgrims would come as far as was possible, really. I mean, if they could get there, they would go. And the city would swell to two, three, four times its everyday size. And it was crowded with people who wanted not just to honor God, but to be with God. And that means a lot, because for Jerusalem, the city itself, and especially the temple, the place was seen as the city where God lived. Like, God had this address, and it was in Jerusalem, and he housed himself in the temple. The temple sort of symbolizes the very presence of God among his people. This urban community that symbolized God's witness in the world, right? So this means that people were on a high alert spiritually. Just like maybe when you come into the building on a Sunday morning, they too are expecting to hear from God in some way. And here comes Jesus riding into the city on a donkey, symbolic of the coming Messiah. And the people responded by throwing cloaks and palm trees or palm branches and throw trees, that'd be amazing. But they threw palm branches on the ground, celebrating his arrival. And they did so in song and dance. And this is not new. I mean, they understand how this works. 200 years prior to this, a revolutionary named Judas Maccabeus, the Maccabean Wars, where we get Hanukkah from, by the way, won a battle with the Syrian king Epiphanes. He did the exact same thing. He rode into Jerusalem. People wave branches, singing songs and so on. Judas then enters the temple, makes a sacrifice. He rebuilds, he cleanses the temple, he rebuilds it. And establishes a dynasty that would last 100 years. People have seen this before, if only through history. And Jesus, by doing this, is up to something. He's saying something. N.T. Wright says it this way, you don't spread cloaks on the road for a friend or even for a respected senior member of your family. You do it for royalty. And you don't cut branches off trees or foliage from the fields to wave in the streets just because you feel somewhat elated. I love that scene. You do it because you are welcoming a what? A king. This is exactly, they know exactly what they're doing. And the word Hosanna is what they're saying to him. Hosanna in the highest. And we've sung that word today already twice. But Hosanna simply means to save now, like to bring salvation now. The crowd was asking Jesus to save them, essentially. But that word "save now" or "Hosanna" is not, it's not the same. We don't. It's not the same way that we use it today in the church. It's not the same way we think of that word in the church today. And again, it's important to know or be reminded or learn for the first time that in the days, in those days, the Messiah had nothing to do with resurrection. That would actually be a surprise at the end of this coming week in Jesus' life. It would surprise the disciples, too. The Messiah had nothing to do with that. The Messiah was about power, domination, and victory. The Messiah was to be a king, and the king would restore Israel, pulling her away from imperial oppression, in this case, underneath the arm of Rome, and return her to a great. Nation. The word salvation is connected to restoration, to restore something, to make it right. That's what salvation means. And so when they're yelling Hosanna, they understand that salvation is tied to the restoration of God's people. And the Messiah would lead that. The Messiah would take care of that. Spiritually, yes, but also, especially at this time, as a nation, politically. And so Jesus rides into town on this donkey. People start sensing that this is the time. The Messiah has come, they throw the branches, they sing Hosanna, and everybody sort of understands what's going on. Mark goes on to say, and he entered Jerusalem, and he went into the temple, and he looked around at everything, as it was already late, he left, I mean he went out to Bethany with the twelve, it's such a strange ending, he walks into the temple, and he does nothing, he just looks around. And then he leaves. Now here's the thing. The ancient world, they were used to these sorts of entrances. They were used to these sorts of triumphal entries. We just know from history that these things basically had five components. Let me just run through these with you. There's the hero. There's the parade. There's the pointing and singing. There's the speech. And there's the sacrifice. I mean, this, again, is stuff that we just know. And it sort of breaks down like this. The parade begins with the hero himself general, a king, military leader, comes into the city. He comes into the city. He's normally riding like a white horse, because that's really powerful, or he's being pulled in a chariot by a white horse, but never a donkey. Like, this is just sort of, again, what Jesus is doing almost feels like a parody. It almost, it almost looks like, at least to Rome, like, this is just silly. Is he making fun of us? Like, what is he doing? It's like, what is happening? But they would come in, on a white horse or something powerful like that. And the parade would involve uh, people carrying the spoils from the battles, the prisoners that they've taken, the armies that they've led. And people would essentially point at the hero and they would sing songs of praise to them. But then there would be this speech given by one of the elite uh, members of the city or the military, a speech about the hero, telling the story maybe of a famous battle or something like that. This happened in King David's life where King David comes home from slaying Goliath and there's Saul as well who happened to be the king at the time and the people are singing that Saul has slayed his thousands and David his tens of thousands, which really made Saul mad. But basically they're telling the story as he he returns to the city. And the last thing that the hero would do is he would go to the temple of that city and he would offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving, an offering to the gods. So Jesus' entrance into the city follows the list, but with two exceptions. And these exceptions sort of make the whole thing work. The first exception or the first difference is that no one gave a speech. No one said, hear ye, hear ye. Jesus arrives on this lowly donkey. And there's a story with that, right? No one does that. And part of the reason for this is that no one knew him in that way. The people that were following and leading the procession, were part of the tribe from Bethany who had come with him. They knew him. But this was an unannounced parade, okay? Parades are usually known. When the military leader comes home, everybody's going to be there, right? The people who work for him have gone around the city and said, you will be here at sunrise for the parade of the king. But no one knew that this was going to happen. There was no, like, city permit that had been given. Jesus just shows up on his own. With his own plan, and he carries it out in the streets of Jerusalem. It's essentially street theater. It's you waiting on the train or whatever, and song and dance breaks out. Like it's just, you're, you're in the middle of it, without any foreknowledge. So no one gives a speech because no one knows Jesus in that way. But the other thing that is absent from this is that Jesus made no sacrifice in the temple. He walks into the temple, he looks around, no one's there, it's late. Mark says it's late. And he leaves. End of story. It's so strange. Why did he even go into the temple? It is the next thing that people would expect. Jesus will now go to the temple and offer a sacrifice. And if he knew about the donkey, certainly he knew that the temple would be empty. I'm only guessing that everyone stood there outside the temple and watched Jesus just stand there and look around, waiting for him to offer a sacrifice. Again, they've seen this. I mean, 300 years before, Alexander the Great... Marched into the same city, went to the same temple, and offered a sacrifice right there. But Jesus walked in, looked around, and then left. Now, on a practical side of things, there had been no victory to which to offer a sacrifice for. Nothing had happened for Jesus to give thanks about. There's been no battle, no war, no campaign. Again, it's just love God, love neighbor. There's nothing, nothing's been dominated. So part of Jesus' behavior here is simply honest to the situation at hand. There had been nothing or no need for a sacrifice in that way. But if you look and listen more closely, there's something extraordinary happening. And there's something extraordinary being said by Jesus without saying anything in this part of the story. And I'll say it twice just so it can sit for a minute. But Jesus doesn't make a sacrifice in the temple because in a matter of days, he himself will become the sacrifice. Jesus goes into the temple. The next obvious thing is that he would offer a sacrifice, but he doesn't because he himself, in a matter of days, will become the sacrifice. I think what's most fascinating about the Jewish sacrificial system, which, if you're interested, is a really sexy read in the first six chapters of Leviticus, all right? We're talking about guts and neck and what you do. I mean, it's just, it's awesome. All right, the thing about it is, and there's, it outlines all the different prescribed sacrifices for the temple. But what's most interesting about the Jewish sacrificial system is that there is no sacrifice prescribed for intentional sin. All the sacrifices prescribed were either just for worship, like Thanksgiving, like just I feel like just giving an offering to God, or for what the writer says is unintentional sin. That word is used specifically, unintentional sin, which means sin by mistake, or the best way to think about it is you wandered into a bad situation without any prior plan to be there. You know, like, how did I end up here sort of thing? No previous plan or intent to do wrong, and yet you end up in that situation. And for these types of sin, the sacrificial offerings were for the guilt that you would feel in the wake of such things. So it's really important to know before I say the next thing. In the system of sacrifices within the Jewish community, there is no sacrifice given or instructed by God for intentional sin. Nothing. It's all this unintentional stuff, which is really strange. Think about it this way. There was nothing you could offer to make up for the sins that were willful or intentional. There was no official sacrifice for these. All you could do is simply stand before God and hope that he is merciful. It's actually God who makes the sacrifice in that situation. He sacrifices judgment and instead goes with grace and forgiveness. It's a really, really powerful truth. When we are broken because of our own decisions to hurt ourselves or others, there's nothing that God asks us to do to fix ourselves. I mean, that's the gospel in the darkest seven chapters of the Old Testament. There's nothing that God calls us to do to fix our own willful brokenness. It's a reminder that forgiveness and being made clean of our sin is not, it never has been our job. Never. Jesus isn't like doing a new thing in that regard. Like to talk about the Old Testament and saying, well, they had to just like totally make up, no. This is not new, it's a reminder, and Jesus will become that sacrifice. Jesus stood there as the people watched. He made no sacrifice, but in a week's time he would. He would offer himself, but not in the system of the temple, lest his sacrifice be confused or just connected to only one group of people, but he would die on a Roman cross, which is no respecter of ethnicity, race geography it's just everyday criminals leaving no doubt that his sacrifice covers a wider audience the world the whole world you and me in fact so jesus rides into this city on a donkey and he goes to the temple of course everybody thinks he's, i mean this is the king, this is the messiah he goes to the temple to make a, a sacrifice and he doesn't because he himself will become that in the coming days so as we close it, I want to have you stand. I'm going to say a couple things as you stand, and then we'll close together. The interesting thing about Palm Sunday uh, is its connection to Ash Wednesday. Um, we got these palm branches. You probably saw them on the communion table. Uh, our youth pastor, Kyle, picked them up at the Cathedral Bookstore down the street at St. Philip's, Big, beautiful church on Amen Corner, as we call it. But uh, down on Peach Street. I went there the other day actually to pick up some other things and I love going there some great books and whatever but there's this really old lady behind the counter and I'm checking out I got all my stuff there and she's you know she's working through all the prices or whatever and then she says are you uh, are you like a student or because they'll give you a discount if you're a student or a pastor and I said no I'm a pastor and I immediately pull my card out because they never believe me and I, I give her the card and she looks at me, and she goes, oh. Well, then she starts to tell me a story about a guy who used to work at the Cathedral of St. Philip's. We'll just call him Joe. And this is what she says. Yeah, Joe, Joe used to wear his hair like that. <laughs> I, I just kind of want to know what happened to Joe. Like, was that a way of saying, yeah, we got rid of him, you know, like, <laughs> real fast. So I'm, I'm, if, you, if you bump into Joe, let me know what happens to Joe. Um. But one of the great traditions about Palm Sunday and Ash Wednesday, which happens at the beginning of Lent next year, so Palm Sunday comes after, it ends the season, or towards the end of the season of Lent, is that uh, the church takes the palm branches, which we will do as well, and they burn them, and the ashes that come from the palm branches become the ashes in Ash Wednesday the following year. So they rub them on the foreheads of the church to mark the beginning of the season of Lent, but it's connected to the Palm Sunday or Triumphal Entry story the year before. And there's all kinds of interpretations of why that is a tradition. It's very, very old, and nobody really has 100%. Like, we we don't know why we do this. But one thing is for sure is that while the people were waving these branches and throwing them on the the ground, I mean, like, they're announcing that Jesus is a king, and they're totally not ready for what kind of king he will actually be. We see this as a triumphant sort of thing, like a victory, like these palm branches represent victory, but they actually also, maybe more so, represent our confused way of viewing God. And it's really fitting to me that these things we use to celebrate, I would say, the wrong things, get turned into the ash that goes across our forehead to remind us that we often celebrate the wrong things. We celebrate power and control and victory over others. And so the ashes from these branches will be spread on our foreheads to remind us that we are often wrong about the world, that we're often wrong about God and his ways, and that we too are in need of grace and God's mercy. And as we move through the next week together, returning here next Sunday on Easter, we are to keep in mind that it is, uh, it is God in Christ who restores us, no one else. Like that's the thing That's the Easter message. When Jesus said those famous words, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me, one of the many things that he is saying is, listen, no one else is coming for you. God is not sending anybody else for you. And so it is uh, on Christ that we place our eyes and our hope and our trust. And these branches remind us that we need that because we get it wrong. Sometimes we get it wrong. And so I want us to speak these words together as a community, as a tribe this morning, that have been spoken by the church since the fourth century. And we say these together, we believe in God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is, seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, for the forgiveness of sins, and we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. I love that last line. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. The Hebrew people would say, Shabbat shalom olam ha'abah, the peace and the rest of the world to come. That's the trip that we're on, and our path is towards the life of the world to come to come and our days are framed and are to be framed by the ways of god and with the trust in his grace and mercy for our journey we gather together as a church every sunday to kind of remind each other of this through song through teaching through communion and we remind each other as well as we pray these words as we always do at the end of each service we pray these as a tribe together the prayer that jesus gave us saying our father in heaven hallowed be your name your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Let me pray for you and then we'll be dismissed. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this community that's gathered. Thank you for our church family. Thank you for the churches that line this, uh, that just or all throughout the city, our state, and through our world. Thank you that we all stand together as one, looking at your son and being reminded of your grace and mercy and your forgiveness and salvation and restoration that comes through him. And God, we pray today as we enter this week leading up to Resurrection Sunday that you'll just move in us, that you'll reshape our faith, that you'll renew us in some way as we walk those steps towards resurrection thank you so much for today thanks for the music thanks for the fellowship thanks for the the freedom and the ability to stand in this building together as a family and i pray for those who are doubting and suffering and struggling in their lives i pray that the next several days and of course easter sunday will be so encouraging for them god we love you and we pray all these things in your name and everyone said "Amen." grace and peace and we'll see you next sunday easter sunday